The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Today's topic is criminal profiling. Criminal profilers focus on crimes through examining the behavior personality characteristics, and the nature of criminals. It is part of the gritty business of investigation. My guest today, Brant E. Turvey, is a criminal profiler and will discuss this provocative topic and the forensic science processes that are used to analyze the crime scene, the victim, and the offender. I'll tell you a little bit about Brant. Brant Turvey is a senior partner or the senior partner at Forensic Solutions LLC, and is a forensic scientist, criminal profiler, and an adjunct professor of sociology and justice studies at Oklahoma City University. He received a Bachelor of Science in History and another Bachelor of Science in Psychology from Portland State University with an emphasis on forensic psychology. His Master of Science is in Forensic Science and is from New Haven University. Brent's been court qualified as an expert in a number of areas in state and federal courts across the U.S., um, criminal profiling, victimology, crime scene investigation, crime scene analysis, false reports, sex crimes investigations, crime reconstruction, and, of course, forensic science. He also does consulting around the world. He's lectured before groups of detectives at no less than six China-based police bureaus and to Singapore's police academy. Brent is the author of five books, including Forensic Criminology and Criminal Profiling, an Introduction to Behavioral Evidence Analysis, all academic and published by Elsevier Science. Welcome to the show, Brent. Thanks for having me, Francie. Thanks. We had a little uh, technical difficulties here, so if our, some of our listeners couldn't get on initially, uh, we were experiencing just uh, a little problem. So tell me, Brent, how did you get in, interested in forensic science, and, and how did you get interested in criminal profiling? Well, I, I, came, at, uh, I, I came at criminal profiling first, I think. Uh, at least that's, that's how I remember it. <laughs> uh, I was very interested in sort of how... Uh, offenders chose their victims because I had a, an incident happen to me when I was very young. Not not me as a victim, but I knew someone who was a victim, uh, and she had been uh, molested by a stranger. She had been molested by a brother, and she had been sexually assaulted by a uh, by a boyfriend. Really? And all over the course of maybe fifteen years of her life, and I I couldn't get my head around the notion that one victim could have multiple offenders over time, and so that sort of caused me after after I had my own personal stupid reactions to those things when I was a kid, as I sort of started my college career, I, I focused on that quite because it really bugged me. I, I understood the idea of multiple of a defender with multiple victims. I understood that. 
but I couldn't understand the concept of a victim with multiple offenders. So mm-hmm. starting to study that, that's what led me to profiling. And it led me to all the stuff that was done by the FBI and their interviews with offenders. And I thought, oh, that's the most brilliant thing I ever heard. I need to, mm-hmm. I need to interview offenders to understand them. That's the best way to do it. And my first, uh, my, the first opportunity that I had, I, I, was, I was given the opportunity as, as an undergraduate to interview uh, Jer- Jeremy Brudos in Oregon. And he's a serial killer who was uh, convicted in the 60s uh, for multiple. For, he was uh, killed at least five women, convicted of, I think, three, and suspected of about uh, five or six more. And so to bone up for this, I, I, I approached like any other subject. I thought, I well, just, I'll go down to the police department, look at the evidence that they have available, since that should be public, since these cases are all closed out, and prepare myself. And in doing that, I looked at the physical evidence they had. And in there, there were photographs. He, what he would do is he was an amateur photographer. He would take women... Dress them. He would he would kill them. Dress them up in lingerie he'd stolen from other coeds, and take pictures of of them hanging there wearing this lingerie with a mirror in the background, so that the picture would include him taking the picture hmm. in the back, which was very odd. And he would also his his wife was involved as well. He would dress his wife up in their clothes and with their bodies, and very interesting. Well, the reality was when I met him in person, he was very personable, very charming, very friendly. And I'm pretty sure I would have believed just about everything he said if I had not looked at the physical evidence in the case. Interesting. So he got over he, very quick. And that led me to question you, so how, do, how, how is the FBI doing this? How are they approaching this issue of profiling? Because their study on, of 36 offenders was the, was the core basis for all their profiling methodology. And, and it come to find out that that was the number one criticism that had kept it from getting published in, in legitimate journals. The issue was they had taken... Uh, offenders at their word and not question them and not check it against the actual uh, the actual physical evidence. Yeah. And mm-hmm. the reason why is because they didn't know how. They just thought, we just go talk to these offenders and we'll get the truth out of them because we're, we're human lie detectors. Right. <laughs> That's not true. So, so naturally, the question becomes, how do you find out what's going on at the crime scene? And the reality is the only way to do that is the physical evidence. You were uh, saying how you... We're going to go interview this man in prison who was a serial killer. Right. His name was Jeremy Brudos. And essentially, uh, if I had not prepared uh, myself with the, by looking at the physical evidence, by looking at the crime scene photos and the photos that he took of his victims, I would have, I would have sort of believed everything he said because he, he basically said to me that he didn't do it. That when he got out, he wanted to start a radio store, and he was actually still in prison meeting with young girls from colleges, his very victim population. So he would have them come over. He would do math homework with them. He was a trustee at the prison. It was quite horrifying, actually. Uh, and he had a lot of people convinced that he was not as bad of a guy as he was. And these are people, of course, who had not looked at the physical evidence record. And so that's how it, I, led, I was led to crime reconstruction, because forensic science and crime reconstruction are the only way, in my view, to get an objectively reliable picture of the crime scene. Sure. And so that's... That's what led me right down that. The two things to me are very, very much connected. You can't, until you've looked at the physical evidence, you don't know what behavior actually occurred. Because at some, at some level, if you haven't looked at the physical evidence, you're having to take somebody's word for something, either a victim or a suspect or a witness. And all these sources are inherently unreliable for a variety of reasons, as I'm sure you're aware. So for me, that was, that was kind of a no-brainer. You have, to, you have to do that. And that's, to this day, that's the role that I play. In, uh, in the cases that I work, yeah. is to come and in and assess and establish the behavioral evidence for a client, whether it's a police department or an attorney in a criminal case or an attorney in a civil case, to help them understand 
the the crime that they have they, they actually have what that's what that uh, what that means with respect to what their client has told them or with, with respect to what witnesses have said or what victims have said and then uh, what that means in general for the case in terms of uh, motive knowledge skillability all that stuff comes into play right so it's, it's, it's a, it's a, it was a lesson that I learned very well and it's a lesson that uh, it still serves me to this day and were you still in school at this point? I was, yes. I was, uh, I was undergrad at Portland State University, and I was given the opportunity to do that interview by a man named Gary Perlstein, who's a uh, professor of uh, criminal justice at Portland State University. And ironically, he was never a professor of mine, because I always st- I studied history, and then I moved on to studied psychology. But he and I connected because he had written a book. Uh-huh. <laughs> I read it. It was in the library. I spent, oh, that was the other thing. I spent a lot of time in the library reading. Uh, because back in the day, back in those days, we didn't have the Internet as it exists today. Uh, we had a computerized system of, of articles and a computerized system, but, but mostly I was looking up things on microfiche, and I was reading journal articles in the library. And PSU had probably one of the best library systems I've, I've ever seen, like seven floors of books and two floors wow. underground. It was great. So now that's today, great. that's not a big deal. Back then, it was huge. So, so define criminal profiling for me, will you, Brent? Sure. Uh, criminal profiling it means a lot of things to a lot of people, as you can imagine, and there are lots of different methods that are involved. Uh, criminal profiling essentially is, refers to the general process of inferring the characteristics of an offender. Uh, like, uh, you know, he was this tall, he was, uh, you know, he was angry, <laughs> he, was, he, was, um, uh, he was white, he was, ma- he was male, uh, he drives a particular type of vehicle, uh, has a particular type of attitude, uh, those, those kinds of things, things that describe the offender. Now, the, how the, the real question is, how do you arrive at those inferences, those, those conclusions about an offender? Right. And how there do are you? Two, there are really, we, we talked about this yesterday, there are really two different ways to break it down. One is uh, a way of looking at it through your experience. You kind of predict what a typical offender is like based on your experience, or... Uh, or if you're an academic uh, researcher, you do it based on research that you've conducted or research that you've read. Uh, so it's a statistical probability or an experiential guess based on, uh, based on your knowledge of what offenders are. Mm-hmm. And that, that results in a prediction about what this particular offender. You're going to see a crime scene and say, okay, I've seen this kind of crime scene before, and therefore, generally, this kind of crime scene is committed by, uh, this kind of crime scene is the result of this kind of behavioral uh, or this kind of personality. And that's one way of doing it. It's predictive, it's abstract, it involves sort of average offenders and average victims. And what I've learned, of course, of course in my career, is there's no such thing. Average, and even actually that's the biggest problem you have with statistical or experiential inferences. There is no average. There is mm-hmm. no such thing as an average. There is no such thing as a typical anything. Every, every single crime, as similar as it may be to other past crimes, is different. But worse than that, a lot of the studies are based on uh, a researcher's own sort of best reconstruction of what they think happened, and they may not be a criminologist. They may not be a forensic scientist. In fact, more often than not, they're not. They're not any of those things. They're just taking a guess as to what they think the behavior is that occurred. So their study itself is inherently flawed. So even under the best circumstances, these studies don't necessarily reflect actual crime. They re- they reflect a researcher's guess at what crime is, and that's sort of a very interesting problem. Mm-hmm. So let's. So the other type is the type that I use, which is more deductive or um, uh, uh, analytical. You're looking specifically at the case. You're saying, in this case, we have these behaviors, we have these decisions, we have these types of victims, and that tells us this specific information about this offender. 
this uh, this case, this offender, it's a concrete uh, analysis. And okay. Instead of it being a predictive analysis, where you're trying to guess at what might be, you're actually analyzing. And one requires more work than the other. That's the that's the real that's the real difference. And that's where the victimology comes in as well, right? Well, they come in. You can use you can do victimology in both, but in one case, one in the inductive style of profiling, victimology is a average. The average victim in these kinds of cases is this. Therefore, this the victim in this case will be that will will have those traits. Instead of doing that, in, 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 in deductive profiling, you say, okay, the victims in this case look like this, <laughs> and you just, and it's, the difference is the amount of analysis that you do. In predictive or analytical profiling, you you have to do almost almost no analysis. You rely entirely on the uh, the study or the research or the experience that you have instead of analyzing the actual case at hand. And so it looks like if you do it and you're right 50% of the time, you look like you're magic because you look like you're just pulling stuff out of thin air. Right. Whereas if you're if you're actually doing an examination, a forensic analysis of the case, you know it does it doesn't look like magic. It looks like work, and that's the problem. Most people do not know how the skill do a reconstruction. They don't have the skill to do an actual uh, broken-down victimology. They don't have the skill to do a full crime scene analysis. And these are the components of profiling that, are, that require hard work and a lot of knowledge, skills, and ability. And for those who don't have that, they can't. They have to rely on the predictive uh, stuff that's based on research because they, they have to make assumptions about the crime or they have to make assumptions about similarities to other crimes so they can avoid doing the reconstruction in this case, doing the victimological assessment in the particular case, doing the crime scene analysis because they don't have those skills. Okay, so Brent, some people that are listening might wonder what a forensic analysis is compared to a regular analysis. Right. This is a big one, and I really appreciate that question. That's a big, there's a big difference. There are, profiling exists in two very different worlds, and they collide very often because the people who are in those worlds don't necessarily understand the difference. It was developed, criminal profiling was developed, um, has always been used, well, it was first used as a forensic tool, but then was more used as an investigative tool. Uh, they're, they're, those are the two realms, investigative and forensic. In an investigative context, a uh, criminal profile is used to uh, look at the evidence that you have to date, to a, give an assessment of it, to look at the behaviors that you have at the moment, give an assessment, render a profile based on what you know at that moment, and that profile is going to change because you're going to get new information. You're going to have further victims. You're going to have your reconstruction is going to get more flushed out. You're going to have evidence that's going to be tested later on down the line. As you know, for example, most people aren't aware of this, but we, be, we are hopefully becoming more aware, toxicology results. On TV, they arrive immediately. Right. Uh, in reality, in reality, what, what is it, like three to four weeks it takes to get toxicology oh, yeah. results? Yeah. So if you've got a homicide and uh, you have a victim who's, who's caused a death you can't tell, you don't have any behavior to look at yet. If they've got no injuries, no bruising, no nothing, you have no behavior to look at it until those tox results come back. When the tox results come back, that's going to change what you perceive about what happened, whether or not the person was intoxicated, whether or not they were using substances, whether or not that substance abuse was chronic. You're going to learn a lot of things about that, about that sure. uh, person once those results come back. And that, in turn, results in its behavioral evidence about what they did, how they lived their life, the risks that they took. So in an investigation, you're often making decisions and you're making uh, you're making you're conducting analysis on incomplete information. And because that's true, you accept that as a limitation of what you're doing. You accept that it's going to change, that you're going to be not necessarily wrong, but it's going to be incomplete, and it's going to change when you get new information. And that's completely different from a forensic context. In a forensic context, you have as much information as you're ever going to have. 
you are there's a court proceeding that's coming up, and that's mm-hmm. what that's what the word forensic means. It means that something in court is going to happen. Some so either it's going to be a hearing of, for admissibility, it's going to be a, a a trial, the guilt phase or a penalty phase of a trial, or maybe there's a coroner coroner's inquest. There's all kinds of legal proceedings where uh, you might be asked to answer legal questions. And for criminal profiling, when you're doing that, um, very often criminal profiling itself, uh, the inference of offender characteristics, that's not admissible at all, generally. Okay. There are states where they let everything in, and that's like Wisconsin, but that's an exception. Generally, it's not admissible. So what's happened is the FBI, for example, they have changed. They don't call what they do criminal profiling anymore. They don't even call their people criminal profilers, and they get very angry if you point that out, uh, because that keeps them being admissible. So... Very often, they, what they call it is criminal investigative analysis, even though that they say in their literature, this is the new word for profiling, and it's the same methodology. So they, are, they have an understanding that there is a difference in the way that uh, findings are treated from investigative to forensic context. And the reliability, the difference, where I think you're, what you're asking to answer your question, the difference is a question of reliability and certainty. When you give forensic findings, they have to meet a higher standard. It's not dynamic. It's not based on stuff that's going to change. It's not based on a best guess. It's not, you're not trying to help the investigation leading them to, to, to evidence. You are providing a report that is itself going to be admitted as evidence. Now, the profile might not be admissible, so you don't necessarily go that far. But there are parts of the process that are very admissible. Like For what? Example, like what, Brant, would be admissible? Yeah, the, big, the biggest... The biggest uh, exception to these sort of admissibility issues is when you are dealing with multiple cases, multiple offenses, or uncharged prior bad acts. And you have like a serial rapist. The serial rapist gets accused. They have multiple cases that they're being charged with. And the question is, can they all be, first question is, can they all be tried together? And that's a question that could be answered by looking at uh, whether or not there's a common scheme or plan or whether or not there's a, they were connected together in their commission some way. And these are legal questions that the court asks, and very often a, pro- a profiler will be brought in to look at the behavioral evidence to see whether or not the legal burden has been met to and allow this to And there's also a jurisdictional issue as well, right? Yeah, ju- and th- th- that's the next thing, jurisdictional issues. Can you, are we going to try them all together in one place? In California, they have what's called a serial killer statute. Because why, and why would you want to try them all together in one place? The reason why is for the prosecution is, one, it creates a... It makes the burden of proving guilt easier because when you lump all these cases together, it has a very prejudicial effect. It makes them look more guilty if you're, provo- sure. if you're presenting them all at once. That creates a very highly prejudicial effect. So the burden is very high to, to sort of clear that hurdle in terms of what the evidence has to show. Then on top of that, you also have the financial issue. You don't want to be trying them every, in every single county, especially if you've got like 20 cases. You have to try them 20 times, and it can be very expensive. So there has to be a... A, a, a meeting in the center to both address the, the prejudice that might be uh, held against the defendant versus the, uh, the cost uh, of justice for the community trying to try this individual. And in the middle there, you have to do that analysis and you have to answer these questions. And that's very often the kind of case where I get called in. Is there enough behavioral evidence to show there's a common scheme or plan or there's a, they're connected together in their commission? Another example is when you have an offender who's on trial for a, say, rape or a sexual assault, and they have a history of committing crimes. And they want the, the prosecution wants to bring that in as propensity evidence to show that the person has a propensity to, re, to commit these kinds of crimes. 
even though they haven't been tried or convicted of them. And that's allowable under certain circumstances. Yeah, right. So, and under the right, so the question is, are these crimes unique enough or distinctive enough to allow them to be introduced as evidence of their propensity? Okay, and Brent, again, we need to take a break. That, uh, we need to take a break. Uh, that's okay, the voice so. of Brent Turvey. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. IRB Search is simply the best online data provider for locating people, businesses, and assets. IRB Search gives you strength in numbers. With one click, you can access billions of records. Even with partial information on your subject, IRB Search instantly returns current and past addresses, phone numbers, and more. Call IRB Search today at 1-800-447-2112 to sign up. Mention PIs Declassified and you'll receive a two-week trial of 100 free searches to get started. Call 1-800-447-2112 to find out why IRB Search is simply the best. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest is Brent Turvey, who is a forensic psychologist and a criminal profiler. Brent, do you have a case that you could take us through step by step and, and tell us how you developed um, your opinion uh, that you testified to? Sure. Um, there's, in terms of criminal profiling, and just to be clear, I'm not a forensic psychologist. I have a degree in psychology, but you've got to be careful. Okay. Sort of with your my, there. What, my there's, there's a lot of different, and on that note, there's a lot of different pathways to criminal profiling, and, and certainly forensic psychology is one of them. Uh, so there, there are a lot of ways to get there. And that, that's definitely one of them. Okay. That just doesn't happen to cover my background. Okay. Because <laughs> um, that would take a PhD, is that right? Uh, no, it does not. In fact, if you, if you look at the qualifications of most FBI profilers, for example, and that's sort of, we use that because that's what people think of when they think of profiling because their PR is so good. Uh, most of them are lawyers uh, or former law enforcement. 
um, the practicing profilers are not psychologists. They're not uh, behavioral scientists at all. In fact, they had to stop calling themselves the behavioral science unit because there were no behavioral scientists in it back in the 80s. They changed it to the behavioral analysis unit in, I think, something like the, in the 1990s. Okay. Um, for, the, for the most of for, for anyone else who's trying to get into profiling, the educational pathway is, there's, there's like three different ways. One is through forensic psychology, in which case um, uh, there are MA programs that are master's programs, which I would not waste on anyone, uh, or there are PhD programs, and those, those tend to be better. There also is the investigative track, which is, like yourself, someone who's got a lot of experience investigating violent crime, who has a lot of exposure to the case material, but also has a sort of a theoretical underpinning because of some, some basic education that they've had about criminal justice or criminology. Mm-hmm. And there also is the, um, there also is the uh, forensic track, which is sort of the, the person who's knowledgeable about reconstructing crime and examining crime scenes. And the, those are sort of the three general pathways that the knowledge bases that you use to get there. And then criminology is in there as well because there's a, there's a sociological component, a behavioral science component that can be gained not just based on examining individuals but also examining uh, crime in general and studying and researching crime in general. So there, And I would say the Ph.D. route is the best way to go unless you're obviously going the forensic track or the uh, investigative track. Okay. So, All right. So that, those, that's, just, that's my view. And, I, and I, there, there are, like I said, there's a lot of different ways. I cover this in my tech, in criminal profiling, and the, the fourth edition just came out. That was one of the issues we got a question about all the time. What are the educational pathways? And you, you, what you'll find is a lot of the people out there who are offering their services as profilers, they have no behavioral science credentials at all. They have no forensic science credentials at all. They have no um, credentials whatsoever in, the area, in areas related to profiling. They're doing it based on what they've read in the media or what they've read in books instead of themselves having studied a, a path or a course. Okay, so take, um, us, take us through a case, Brent. Sure, not a problem. One of the more um, famous cases that I was known for, that I'm known for, is uh, California versus Lewis Peoples. And this is a case where I worked both for the, pro- for the, the, for the, po- the police department to help catch the guy, and then I worked for uh, the defense doing an MO analysis after the fact. And say the name again, Lewis? Cal- California versus Lewis Peoples. Okay. Uh, Lewis Peoples was a uh, meth addict. <laughs> And that's the most important thing to know about poor Lewis. <laughs> he's not a, not, a, not a good guy, and even worse when he's on, on meth. Okay. What was happening was that in the, in the Stockton area, Stockton, California area, there was a lot of shootings happening at, uh, at, at uh, convenience stores and other areas, and they had connected a couple of them together by virtue of the same, cal- same gun being used, the forty caliber Glock. And what he would do is he would come into a place, shoot everybody up, and take the money. Now that sounds like he's pretty knowledgeable and skilled. He would also uh, plan his route. He would also he would also plan an escape route. And this guy he taught me a lot about profiling work in this case. He basically um, he basically would plan his route, but he wouldn't use it. He would use, he would have all this material to effective to affect his, uh, his 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 attack, but he would not use it. And then he would also not take all the money. He would take only what was seen because he was using meth. He would have this focus problem where he would focus on say he went into a, a grocery store, shot a bunch of people, he would grab the cash register, one of the cash registers, and leave with it. Instead of, say, looking for the large thousands of dollars that are just laying out in the open because they're just opening up and putting the cash cow down the, down the lanes of the checkout stand. Okay. So that was, uh, was a very interesting. It's a high, high volume of killing, very low reward for this guy. At any rate, um, 
one of the what I what, what you got to do is you got to go back to the first crime and se- sort of sequence the crimes in a series so you can understand what was going on. In this case, uh, the ballistics report came in. Well, there was there was a there was a shooting at a at a, at a place called Talspray. It was did not involve a robbery, but it involved a forty caliber Glock and it had very similar features. And so I said, well, let's look at this one and let's see if this one might be related and let's see what the features of this one are because it's more it's different than the others. And in that one, it had a very specific parking lot in the back. Calispray is a, a factory that makes a cart of dog food. And in the back is where all the people parked. And the offender had gone in all the way around to the back to the parking area, which is very difficult to find, gone through the fence with bolt cutters, uh, broke all the windows in a lot of the trucks, punched out holes in the tires, took cow's blood, which is the component that they added to the dog food, powdered cow's blood, and poured it all over the, the ground so that when people came out during the shift change, they're walking through the cow's blood, and while, when they did that, he started shooting at them. So this person, to me, had knowledge of the location. He had knowledge of the shift change. And he had a, very, he had a lot of anger towards the people that were there. Mm-hmm. And that told me, former employee. So I said, let's start looking through former employees. And long story short, in a very short period of time, less than two hours of doing that, we had identified a suspect and apprehended him. Because they had a, a guy who had a history with the, with the place of making threats and and there was loose people. And then when they picked him up, like within two hours of us coming up with this theory, uh, he had a backpack on him with uh, uh, what, what he called the biography of a crime spree, where he laid out his, uh, his crimes, what he'd done. He took out newspaper clippings. He, he laminated them, and he wrote down why he killed each individual person. In his, uh, in his, in his, uh, in his uh, I think, five people were killed. And by the time he was arrested, how many events were there? There were... Uh, at least four, if not five, events. Okay. And I don't, I'm not sure that includes Cal Spray. But he, had, he was a very broken individual who believed that he, he, he was fired from each job because of his meth problem and because of the paranoia and the, and the threats and that sort of thing from Cal Spray. And then he got a job as a tow truck driver, and he attacked one of his fellow tow truck drivers, killing him, thinking that he would get his job back if he created a vacancy. I mean, so it was this, this kind of irrational thinking, high risk, no reward. <laughs> very, very emblematic of a meth user. Well, Brent, what about false positives? You know, like the Richard Jewell case in uh, Atlanta oh, yeah. at the Olympics. What happened there? Well, it's the same thing that happened in uh, the in the DC sniper case. You use these AI models, these um, uh, these inductive predictive models, and instead of using profiling as an investigative tool at that level, they use it to cast guilt. They don't, and that's just what we talked about before. There's a difference between an investigative use of a profile and a forensic use of a profile. A good investigator knows that the investigative phase, we're not even confronting court and we don't have all the information yet, and the elements of the case are still coming out. You don't use a profile to accuse anyone of anything. It's all about professionalism. If you're a real professional, a real profiler would never use a profile to accuse someone. That's not what profiling does. What it does is it narrows down the suspect and it informs your investigation. And in a dual case, uh, they, I mean, that's what they did. They took the probe. They had a profile of, this, of what they thought was the offender. Well, in, in the Jewel case, they, they, you know, they saw Richard Jewel. He was a security guard. He seemed like a pathetic loser to the to the investigators. They projected all that crap onto him, and they, when they decided he was good for it because he found it. Mm-hmm. All these things that that uh, we know about him after the fact, they they don't paint a very kind picture, and they they seem to be stereotypical of somebody who wants attention and who would create an event to, to be the hero and. This was the. This is what they. This is the image they created, and they went after him for it. 
That's not what a professional investigator does. A, a professional investigator would never start concluding until they gathered all the facts. Sure. But unfortunately, too many investigators think that way. And so profiling can be is rife for abuse. In the uh, in the DC sniper shootings, they had they, the FBI released a profile or gave a verbal profile, which basically said you got one guy who's a white guy driving around in a white van. That's who this is. You need to be looking for that. They John Muhammad ten times. Right. It turned out to be because two, he wasn't white. Hmm? Two African American guys. Yes. That were snipers. They let him go. They stopped him ten times at checkpoints around DC yeah. and let him go each time because he did not fit the profile. It was an absolute and utter abuse of profiling. And the kind of thing that, again, a professional investigator would never want. Uh, the problem is we live in a very checklist-oriented uh, world where the people who are on the ground making decisions, they're not necessarily very well-trained, and they're given a checklist. And if the, if the checklist includes, includes one of these statistical profiles, they're going to make decisions that are, that are going, like you say, raise the create false positives. And that, that's the danger. Well, you know, I very, think that often what where, I where, where, the, um, where the investigation works a theory uh, of what they think happened or who they think the suspect was and, and follow that theory regardless of some of the evidence. Well, I, I think what you're saying is I, I, this is a huge problem. We've seen it over and over again in our work. I'm sure you've seen it as well as I have. That They, they, they treat a theory as though it's a conclusion. Instead yeah. of... Once having, having a theory, trying to disprove it or trying to uh, investigate it and then letting it go up to the theory is disproven, what they do is they cherry-pick their invest- during their investigation and include information and basically gather information that fits their theory and ignore information that doesn't. And that, again, that's a really a poor investigative mindset. And very often in a, in a criminal case, that's the way you can get a good conviction. If you just screen whatever information you're getting to include that makes the suspect look guilty, and then ignore stuff or even hide stuff that makes them look innocent. And this is where prosecutors and police find themselves in a lot of trouble. And very often in a criminal case, that's another role that I play, is I come in, I look at the physical evidence, and I gather the record of the investigation to determine whether or not there's been any bias in the, in the way that information has been investigated, gathered, and presented to the defense. And very often, and you, I'm sure you can do this as well, when you get a package of discovery, if you've been doing this long enough, you can see what's missing real fast. And very often, if you have a new lawyer or a lawyer who hasn't been doing it very long, they might need help in identifying yeah. the particular issues that you're, that you're attuned to because you've been doing this for so many years. And for them, this might be their first rape case. This might be their first uh, murder case. Or this might be a more complex type of serial crime right. where they're not accustomed to the type of evidence that you and I would see on a regular basis. So we can look at it and in five minutes say, here's what's missing from this record. Here are the problems with this investigation. Here is the bias that's shown, and here's the, here are all these other suspects that they ignored. And, and it's always uh, interesting. That's a it's always interesting what is missing, isn't it? So uh, we need to take <laughs> I like another the, break. Page numbers. That's the big for all my for all my investigator colleagues out there. The big the big tip of the day is page numbers. Let's check whenever you get a report. Check the page right. numbers to okay. see if any pages are missing. All right. <laughs> Stay tuned. More from Brent. We'll be right back. News, opinion, your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787, 1-866-472-5787, voiceamerica.com. 
Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat show with Dr. Pat Basile, radio to thrive by. You're listening to PI's Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Brent Turvey, a forensic scientist and criminal profiler, has been discussing this interesting discipline of criminal profiling. Brent, what do you run into? I'm sure you must be challenged all over the place when you testify uh, on criminal profiling and crime scene reconstruction. What happens? Well, obviously, like I said before, I work for both sides. I work for the police during the investigative phase, but rarely do I work for the prosecution in the in the trial phase because they have their own forensic experts to come and testify who they don't have to pay. Uh, and the FBI, of course, they offer their services to law enforcement and prosecutors for free. So, for me, uh, I'm a forensic I'm a forensic examiner first. Uh, I don't care about which side has hired me. I care only about educating the court as to the evidence that I've found. And, and either I'll get to testify or I won't. And then about 60 to 70% of the cases where I'm hired, I'm not going to testify because the findings I've rendered are not necessarily helpful to the defense. Having said that, when I do, when I do testify, and this is, this is where it sort of separates the hobbyists from and the interested and the ingenues from the actual professionals. Professionals mm-hmm. are people who testify. Forensic professionals are people who testify in court. If someone has put the word forensic in front of their name, and they're not in court testifying, they're not actually a forensic anything. Uh, and that's sort of a, that's a very important distinction to make. Okay. When I testify in court, I want you to make, want to make it clear, it is the job of opposing counsel to make sure that I'm qualified. So I don't have a problem submitting a full, a full resume with uh, previous court cases on it, with all my publications on it, and I update it regularly. But the reality is um, you get attacked about your credentials and your credibility generally when they can't attack your methodology. Because if they can attack your methodology and exclude it on that basis, 
that would be the first and only place they need to go. Unfortunately, as we've all seen from high-profile cases, these kinds of the court the courtroom could be a place where there's a lot of theater, and or a lot of dramatics and a lot of inappropriate behavior. The kind of challenges that I that I have seen in court are they run from the mild and professional to the extraordinary and unprofessional, where you where there have actually been charges uh, filed against uh, prosecutors. And like for example, right now in the Lewis People's case, the prosecutor he would come to his name was uh, Chet Dunlap, and he would come to court every day drunk, <laughs> and he would bray. Uh, in front of the jury and in front of the, the, the uh, judge, who was actually his former law partner. He was finally fired and then rehired and fired and rehired on different counties around California, but right now he's under investigation for that, for that, for that behavior that was in the, the people's case. Mm-hmm. And his, kind of, his kind of behavior represents the extreme, and he finally got caught because he was crashing county cars on the weekends while driving drunk. Whoops. <laughs> having, said, <laughs> having said that, the kind of challenges, a typical challenge will be, to me will be, well, you never were in law enforcement, were you? So you don't really know about investigations, forensic science, or crime scenes. And my response to that is that uh, being in law enforcement is actually not what I am. Of course, I've never been in law enforcement. Of course, I've never been a, uh, that's not my profession. That's not my chosen yeah. path. That's not my chosen career. I've, been, I've had sworn credentials in the past, but for special purposes. But being in law enforcement, that's not what I do. Uh, someone who carries a gun, who has handcuffs, who can take away life and liberty and property, that's not somebody who can do an objective analysis of physical evidence. What I do is very different from what law enforcement does. I, I provide an investigative tool, and being in law enforcement and having that kind of expertise, the court has routinely ruled is not a substitute for sound scientific methodology. And it certainly is, it represents a conflict of interest because of all the other things I just mentioned. Mm-hmm. So that first attack is sort of, to me, it's, all, it's theater, or, or it represents ignorance on the part of the people who are raising it. Because what they want to do is suggest well, you've never been in law enforcement, so therefore you can't know anything about forensic science because forensic science and law enforcement are the same thing. And, of course, that's simply not the case. Uh, that, that's the number one challenge. The second challenge is, of course, well, you've never been in the FBI. Well, actually, no, but that's not the FBI profilers. They're not behavioral scientists. They're, not, they're actually police officers who are practicing in an area that, that they can do as investigators because they're government employees, but outside of government employee service, they would not have the qualifications to do this job. So those kinds of challenges are fairly common and fairly uninformed. A lot of what goes on in court sort of plays to the emotions of a jury. And that's true on both sides. Attorneys tend to make arguments. Uh, They basically try to make as many arguments as they can to make their point. And some of it will stick and some of it won't. And it's, it's the job of the forensic expert to provide a cooling effect, to be somebody who can not become emotional about the testimony that they're giving, not be personally invested about it, mm-hmm. and not take anything that's going on personally, even when it is, or especially when it's personal, when they're attacking you personally. And those are the, the kind of things that you get are just, they're bizarre. It's, they're, they're, there's a lot of bizarre stuff. You, what I say to my students is you have to be able to be sitting on that stand and defend every decision you've ever made in your life, right. every decision, every relationship you've ever had, every friend you've ever had, Every, uh, every publication you've ever made, and you better know your publications inside and out because I get grilled. I will have a, a prosecutor stand up and start reading from my textbook mm-hmm. and then say, do you recognize that? And, of course, what they want to prove is you have not read your own stuff, right. <laughs> that you're not an expert, you're not knowledgeable. Fortunately, I have, so I recognize my writing very quickly. Well, but well, it's, it's things like that. that. Does that make sense? Uh, if, if somebody wanted to buy your book, where would they get it? You can go right to Amazon.com and just type in my name. All my textbooks will come up. All your textbooks. They're all and, Girl of Cellular Science. 
Would you mention the, the names of your other books? Sure. I, I've written a textbook in fourth edition called Criminal Profiling. It's been out since 1999. We've done a lot of updates. It's just sensational at this point. I've got a lot of good, great contributors. Uh, another textbook that I just completed with Detective John Savino, retired from NYPD, is the second edition of Rape Investigation Handbook. He was with Special Victim Squad for 18 and a half years in Manhattan. And he and I have been working together for, what, 10, 15 years now. And the other one I just finished as well is with uh, Jerry Chisholm, the second edition of Crime Reconstruction. Yes, and we Jerry both Chisholm know. is a retired DOJ profiler, or uh, reconstructionist. Yeah. Yeah, Jerry's a criminalist, great guy. We both know him. Oh, yeah, he's, he's, he's old as dirt and fun as hell. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> And, and um, how about uh, if somebody wanted to contact you about a case, how would they go about oh, doing that? I have, a, I have a website. It's uh, forensic-science.com. You, if you type my name into Google and you can't find my website, there's a problem. Okay. <laughs> it's very easy to find me on the Internet. So you, could, um, you can call me. You can email me. All that contact information is online on my website uh, if, if, if you need help with a case. Um, commonly, the kinds of cases where I get called is there's a violent crime, there's a serial crime, where they're trying to bring in prior bad acts or uncharged bad acts, or a, a, a rape case where there's a possibility of a false report. I work a lot of false report cases, and I've been pretty effective at uh, helping get acquittals on those. Just because the investigations are not done, as you and I both know, the money is spent on homicide, mm-hmm. and the rape investigations very often done without an investigation. In fact, uh, half the time when I come into a rape case, the rape kit itself hasn't even been processed, even though there are charges filed against a defendant based on someone's word. So, by the time I, just because the case is at trial doesn't mean the investigation's actually been done, or you and I would both be out of a job, right? <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> you know, we're we're winding down the show here. Do you have sure. any last thoughts, Brent? You want to uh, pass on to our listeners? Sure. Uh, what I want to say is, be very careful what you see on television. Television is not real. Uh, the reality is, criminal profiling requires a lot of work, and that means it requires a lot of knowledge, skill, and ability that can only be acquired through education and sort of focused experience on a professional path. It's not something you can just sit down and say, you know, gee, I'd like to try doing this today, or uh, it's psychic, so I can just feel it and I don't have to do the work. No, mm-hmm. if, you're, if you're doing that, you're not, you're not engaging in professional practice. Just like being a student, being a profiler, being a forensic scientist, any of those, being an investigator, these are professional callings that require a professional level of commitment and a professional level of uh, ethics and dedication. So make a commitment to hard work, and you will succeed. If you don't embrace that notion early on, you will get picked off very early in your career. Yeah, and it's, it's very tedious, and it requires a lot of reading, a lot of report writing. Yes, you have, absolutely. Your, your reading skills and your, report and your writing skills are the two things that if you can do those things, if you can read, write, do research, you can do almost any job that exists. And it will distinguish you from about 80 to 90% of the people on the planet who can't do either of those things. Well, I really appreciate you being on the show today, and I, I'm, uh, I would love to, uh, at some point in time, sit in on one of your cases. Uh, it sounds so <laughs> interesting. So uh, I really do thank you so much for uh, working through our technical problems today, you in one part of the, the world and me in another and uh, uh, our studio in another, so it's sometimes a little right. difficult, but I, I appreciate you being flexible and working with me. That's the way it goes. You've got to be, got to be flexible. Yeah, no kidding. So um, let me just say that next, next week, August 25th, will be Dr. David Greenberg from Arizona who will be talking about heroin and its effects on our youth. And then uh, I just want to mention, quickly mention my very valued sponsors, uh, Brown Yard Programs Insurance, 
uh, provides insurance to private investigators and security professionals. PI Magazine, Jimmy Messes and Ro- Rosemary Messes, who operate PI Magazine, a magazine for the trade, and of course it's regular people who are not private investigators and experts can buy the magazine too and read it. It's all very interesting. IRB Search, which is a, and Merlin Information Services, both which provide uh, proprietary information to the industry. And PI Buzz, Tamara Thompson, who provides information uh, worldwide about everything that's happening regarding private investigators. And of course, PI Museum, Ben Harrell and his uh, collection of artifacts about PIs. So tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.